You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, God Came Near. For more information and audio content, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Today is the second week of Advent, and what I love about this Advent wreath here is that it's kind of like I feel like I'm on the timer because if this candle gets any lower, like if it gets too low, this whole thing's going to catch on fire. So my job today is to make sure we end service before this catches on fire, okay? Uh, middle school class is dismissed right now. They're going to go down the stairs. That's what you see in here over to my right, your left. And uh, so if there's any other middle schoolers here, you're welcome to join them down the stairs. We have class every first, second, and third Sunday for middle schoolers. So would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Today, as I mentioned, is the second week of Advent, which uh, Advent being the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's a time in which Christians traditionally uh, focus our hearts and our minds on the greatest event in human history, which is the coming of God into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And for this Advent series here at Whitefields, we're doing a uh, teaching series on Sunday mornings titled God Came Near, in which we're looking at different aspects of the Christmas story and what it means for us that God came near to us in order to redeem us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you're a God who cares deeply for us. Lord, we thank you that your love, we see it manifested in this greatest expression. Lord, that you would leave what was known to you, what was comfortable to you, and that you would become one of us, Lord. In all of our, our, our earthiness and dirtiness, Lord, you came and you dwelt among us and you saved us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And this morning as we study this passage, would you help us that we would understand the gospel afresh in our hearts this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is December 6th. You probably know that. But uh, what you might not know, (coughs) excuse me, is that today is a holiday in Europe. And uh, it's a holiday that isn't really celebrated here in the U.S., but it's a holiday that's historically been celebrated by Christians around the world going back as far as the Middle Ages. And this holiday is called the Feast of St. Nicholas, or you could call it St. Nicholas Day. So uh, I thought I'd share a little bit about that with you. On December 6th, uh, in Europe at least, what parents do is they put chocolate in their children's shoes, and the kids receive gifts from St. Nick on December 6th, that's today. So here in the U.S., you know, Santa Claus comes on Christmas Eve, but in Europe, he comes on December 6th. And so for those of you who are always wondering how he worked out all the logistics, right, of getting to everybody, here's this, here's this secret. He knocks out a whole continent early, earlier in the month, so he doesn't have to worry about it on Christmas Eve. <coughs> now, being that today is this holiday, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about this man St. Nicholas, because I love talking about him, because he was a good man who loved Jesus and he served the Lord. You know, I have little kids, and uh, people sometimes ask me, you know, what do you tell your kids about Santa Claus? You know, especially, you know, you're a Christian, you're a pastor, what's your stance on Santa? Because, you know, there are many people who feel that the focus on Santa Claus in our culture uh, takes away from the true meaning of Christmas. And in a way, you know, that's probably true. But there are some people out there who really don't like Santa. I'm not looking like they 
really, really don't like sand. Like they get pretty worked up over it, right? Because they'll point out to you, as you may already know, that Santa is just the word Satan with the letters mixed up, right? And that's why he's always wearing red and, you know, he has no grace at all. He only gives gifts to you if you're good, right? It's totally like legalism. And he ruins Christmas by taking away our focus from Jesus and putting it on stuff that we have to buy and get and making us all materialistic and stuff, right? So as Christians, what do we tell our kids about Santa Claus? Thank you very much. Well, I'll tell you what we do in my family. Uh, every year around Christmas, we tell our kids the true story of St. Nicholas. So what we do is we don't avoid Santa Claus, but we try to take hold of it and redeem it and say, here's who he really was, and let's celebrate that. You know, St. Nicholas... <clears throat> Nicholas of Mira was his, his name, and he was a devout Christian man. He was a pastor. He was a Christian leader. He was a man who suffered persecution for being a Christian, and he became famous for his generosity to the poor and the needy. So I think that we don't need to avoid Santa Claus or pretend that he doesn't exist or something. Rather, we need to take this as a great opportunity to teach our kids, to teach everybody about a great Christian man who loved Jesus, who was generous and kind because he had the love of God in his heart. And so what we do in my family <clears throat> is we explain to our kids that the reason that you see Santa stuff all over at Christmas time is because this man, Nicholas of Mira, St. Nicholas, he was so great that people want to remember him and they want to emulate him and we should too. You see, uh, this did lead to one problem once, actually. As I, you know, I always tell my kids who St. Nicholas was. Well, one time we were at the mall, and we were in line to get our picture taken with the mall Santa. And one of my kids turns to another kid in the line, and he says to him, kind of like whispers to him, he goes, hey, did you know that's not the real Santa? The real Santa's actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, needless to say, that kid was a little shocked, and we had to tell our kids not to do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, we do tell our kids, right, that as Christians, we want to be like St. Nicholas. We love that guy. We want to love God, and we want to serve God, and we want to be generous to the poor and needy because God has been generous to us. He gave us the greatest gift, the gift of salvation through Jesus, the real Nicholas. Let me tell you about him. St. Nicholas, he was born in the third century in the village of Patara, which is in southern Turkey, and he was born into a wealthy family. So that's right. When we talk about the real Santa Claus, it's, there's no North Pole, there's no reindeer, there's white sand beaches and palm trees. And uh, Nicholas's parents, he was born in a wealthy family, but his parents died when he was just a child, and he was taken in and he was raised uh, in the local church there by the local priest. And being that his parents were wealthy, Nicholas received quite a large inheritance, which he got when he reached adulthood. But one day, as he was reading his Bible, uh, he read the story of the rich young ruler, which you may know from uh, the Gospels. This rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus challenged him to give up the thing which was most important to him, which was his money and his power, and to follow him. And that young ruler, you might remember the story, he wasn't willing to do that. But Nicholas, as a young man, he read this story and he related to it. <coughs> and he said, that's me. 
I am the rich young ruler. I'm young, I'm wealthy. And so he said, but rather than make the mistake of the rich young ruler in that story, Nicholas, he said, I'm going to dedicate my entire inheritance to the sick, the needy, and the suffering in my community. And he dedicated his life to serving God, and he entered into full-time ministry and became a pastor. Later on, he was uh, elected to be the bishop, which is kind of the regional director in the city of Mira, which was the biggest city in that nearby region. During the great persecution of the church in 303 AD under the emperor Diocletian, Nicholas was put in prison and tortured for being a Christian. So I've got a picture here. That's Santa Claus being tortured for his faith. And later on, uh, at the end of the great persecution, later on in 325 AD, Nicholas attended the first great council of the church, which is the Council of Nicaea, where Christian leaders from all over the world came together to discuss the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. Some people at that time had begun teaching that Jesus was not actually divine, that he was just another person, that he was a good teacher and nothing more. And so the church leaders came together to look at the scriptures together and decide what the scriptures said on this issue. That was the Council of Nicaea, and Nicholas was part of that meeting. Nicholas died on December 6th, 343. And he was such a beloved figure in the early church and to the early Christians that they made the anniversary of his death a holiday. And that's what it is even to this day in some parts of the world. Now, the most famous story of Nicholas is that when he was a pastor, uh, there was a poor family in his church, a poor man in his congregation who had three daughters who were of marrying age. And because that man was poor, His daughters, they wanted to get married, but this man didn't have the money which was necessary in that culture to pay for a dowry, to pay for the wedding, and so that meant that his daughters could not get married, which was a problem. In fact, it was a big problem because the only recourse for in that day for a poor woman, an unmarried poor woman, to provide a living for themselves was to give themselves into slavery. That's how they would uh, provide for themselves. So Nicholas, as the pastor of the church, he found out about this, and he went to the house on three occasions. And each time he left an anonymous gift, which was a bag of money to help pay for their dowry, and he would drop this in through an open window while they slept. And the story is told that at least on one occasion, this money fell into their shoes, which is the reason why in Europe, St. Nick leaves uh, gifts in your shoes. And here in the United States, that's kind of morphed into uh, stockings. That's how we get that tradition. So Nicholas, here's what he did. He provided for these poor girls to help them break out of the cycle of poverty. But personally... (coughs) I have a favorite story of uh, St. Nicholas, and that is what he did at the Council of Nicaea. Now, as I first mentioned, Nicaea was focused on discussing the divinity of Christ. There was a major controversy at this time. (coughs) A teaching called Arianism had become popular at this time, and this was taught by a man named Arius. And at this meeting of Nicaea, you know, he was also there, and Arius taught that Jesus was not divine, but that he was just a good man, a good teacher, and nothing more. And the debate there at Nicaea over the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Christ, it became so heated, and you can imagine why, but it got so heated that Nicholas got so angry at Arius that he punched him in the face. 
So he, he said, you're blaspheming Jesus, and I'm not having it. And Santa Claus just reared back and punched a heretic right in the face. So I say, hey, that's, uh, that's my kind of Santa, right? So I say, let's take back the true story of St. Nicholas, and let's use it as a great opportunity to talk about a wonderful Christian man who loved Jesus, who lived out his faith in compassion and generosity and fighting for good doctrine. The story of Christmas is the story that Nicholas was fighting for. Do you see? He's fighting for this story, that God came near to us, that God took on human flesh and became a man in order to save us and redeem us. That story is the Christmas story. It's the heart of the Christian faith. The title of today's message is The Sigh to End All Sighs. The book of Proverbs Chapter 13, verse 12, says this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. How many of you have ever felt that before? That hope deferred makes the heart sick. That word deferred, it simply means delayed. So what it's saying is, as one translation puts it, waiting a long time for what you hope for makes, you, makes your heart sick. Maybe some of you know that feeling. Maybe there's something that you've been waiting for for a long time. There's a hope deferred, delayed in your life. But I think that all of us on some level, on a very deep level actually, know this feeling all too well. And I'd like to show you what I mean. Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. I'd like to read from verses 31 through 35. Then he, that's Jesus, <coughs> returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now this is one of many miracles that Jesus performed during his three years of earthly ministry. And in many ways, it's, it's, um, the four Gospels describe many such occasions as this, in which Jesus healed someone of a physical infirmity that they were suffering from. And it, it, what makes this story in particular interesting though is a detail that's given it's just one word it's one thing that Jesus did but it's it makes the story different than the others and here's that word it says that Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed Jesus takes this man aside from the crowd and he looks at this man who has this physical disability and he pauses and he looks up into heaven and from deep within him comes this rush of emotion without words it's a sigh. A sigh. What is a sigh? It's an expression of raw emotion. It's a reaction to something that is seen or heard or realized. Most people think of God in, in these terms. They think that God is a God who speaks, and he is, right? They think he's a God who calls. He's a God who commands. But a God who sighs? Maybe the reason it strikes me so, so much is because sighing is something that I've been doing a lot of lately. I sighed this week, maybe you did too, when I saw the news <coughs> that another mass shooting had taken place, this time in San Bernardino, California. Terrible. 
I, I saw it this week as I, I went to the hospital to be with a family from our church. Some of you might have known Roberta Lazinski. Her husband Harry and her have been a part of this church for years, but about a year and a half ago, she got a diagnosis that the cancer was back. And after a long battle on a Friday, late Friday, she passed away. She was a good woman and she loved Jesus. And we know that she believed in the gospel. She embraced the gospel. And we know that she is in the presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy and there's no more pain. But yet, seeing how she suffered, seeing how the family that she left behind is mourning her being gone, you see that and you cannot help but sigh. You see, you sigh when you hear how people in families or people who are close to each other uh, they, they choose to be bitter and angry against each other and be separated and divided rather than to forgive and love each other. I'm sure that each of you have reasons in your own lives for, that cause you to sigh. There are different kinds of sighs, by the way. You can have a sigh of relief when things turn out better than they have. You can have a sigh of joy, but that's not the kind of sigh we're talking about here, in, here in Mark chapter 7. This sigh was a sigh of grief. It was an expression of grief. It was an expression of a combination of frustration and sorrow. When Jesus looked at this man who was born deaf, he grieved and he sighed because he knew that it wasn't meant to be this way. Those ears weren't made to be deaf. That tongue wasn't created to stumble. Maybe this is how it is, but it's not how it should be. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's not how it's meant to be. And Jesus looks at this and he sighs deeply because he's grieved. And the same thing happens with you and me. This is why we sigh. We look around and we see things and we know deep down in our heart of hearts that it's not right, that it shouldn't be this way. It may be the reality of life in this world. It may just be the way that things are. People just hurt each other. That's just how it is. Loved ones die. That's the facts. Our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. That's just how it is, but that's not how it's supposed to be. The reason we're grieved by it is because we know deep down inside that that's not the way it should be. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And no matter how much death is a part of this life and it's unavoidable, it still always feels foreign, doesn't it? We're always shocked by it. You always hear people say things like, I just can't believe it. And why would we feel that way? It's not like people just recently started dying, right? It's not like this is a, a new thing. But yet we have this innate feeling deep down inside of us that death is foreign, that death is a thief, that death does not belong, that there's something inherently, fundamentally wrong with it. And the same goes for sickness and pain and death and strife and war. Why is that? Why do we feel that way? <coughs> The Bible says that the reason we feel that way is because we were made for perfection. And we have this lingering ancestral memory of it. And we long to get back to that place where things are the way that they're supposed to be, the way they were originally meant to be. And that's why we feel torn in this life. Always wanting and longing and seeking after perfection, but constantly frustrated by the fact that we cannot find it, we cannot take hold of it. Paul the Apostle put it this way in Romans chapter 8. These were some of the last words that I read to Roberta from the scriptures, by the way. He says this in Romans 8. He says, all of creation waits with eager longing 
to be set free from bondage to corruption. All of the creation groans as if in childbirth, and we groan in this life as we wait for redemption, as we long for the day and wait for the day and look forward to the day when everything will be right, when things will be the way we know deep down inside that they're supposed to be, that they should be, that they were meant to be. And Paul says there in Romans 8, he says, this is the hope in which we were saved. See, these sighs, these groanings, They all come from the same place. They come from grief over the way that things are and the knowledge that this is not the way that they were meant to be, not the way that they should be. This isn't the only time that Jesus sighed, by the way. In the very next chapter, if you turn the page or look over to the next page, Mark chapter 8, we read this, that the Pharisees came to him one day and they began to argue with him and they demanded that he give them a sign from heaven and they were testing him. And it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Why was Jesus so grieved and bothered by the Pharisees asking him for a sign? Well, first of all, what you've got to understand is that the Pharisees were basically insulting Jesus by doing this. Because what do you think Jesus has been doing for the last year and a half, two years? Well, what did he just do? He just healed a man who was deaf. Right before this, if you look in the previous paragraph, he just fed 4,000 people in one of his most obvious, biggest miracles. What has Jesus been doing for two years? He's been teaching and performing miracles. And then these guys come around and they say, hey, we'd really, you know, if you performed a miracle, then maybe we'd believe in you. You see, by these guys coming to Jesus and saying that you haven't yet proved yourself to us, they're taking a jab at him. This is a slap in the face. They're saying that everything he's been doing for the last one to two years, totally worthless, totally meaningless. It's just nothing. It doesn't prove anything. And Jesus sighs. He's grieved. He says this isn't how it's meant to be. That people would be hard-hearted, that people would be so prideful, that people would so resist the will of God. Another time, John chapter 11 There in John chapter 11, some of Jesus' friends had sent for him to come at once because their brother was sick and dying. But when Jesus finally arrived, you know, he had to travel there on foot. It took a while for him to get there. When he finally got there, their brother had already died. And here's what happened when Jesus arrived. We read this in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, it says, and he saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. Now here's what's interesting about this. If you know this story, you know what happens next. Maybe some of you know what's going to happen, right? Jesus is going to heal their brother, even though he's already dead. Jesus is going to bring him back to life. It's amazing. It's one of his greatest miracles. So let me ask you this. If you're Jesus and you know that in just a few minutes' time, you're going to bring this guy back to life and everything's going to be cool, then how are you going to act in this situation? Now, I can only speak for myself, but I would say this. I'd, I'd be like, come on, guys. Come on, chill out. It's not a big deal. Look who's here. It's me. I'm here. I'm here to fix some stuff. Why don't you guys have any faith at all? Come on, guys. Like, pull it together. Stop crying. Just relax. You're all going to be fine. But that's not what Jesus did. 
Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit. He's greatly troubled. In verse 35, coming up, it says that Jesus wept. Doesn't it strike you as a little bit strange that Jesus would weep, that he would mourn, that he would grieve, that he would sigh, considering that he's about to heal this guy in like two minutes from now? But isn't it also true of what happened to the deaf man in Mark chapter 7? I mean, here's Jesus. He knows that he can heal this guy. He knows that he's about to heal this guy. But yet he sighs. Why? Why is he grieved? Why does he cry? Why is he troubled in his spirit by these events? It's because in each of these things, he sees the cracks. He sees the tears in the fabric of God's good creation that sin has caused. You see, when God created the world, it tells us in Genesis that he looked at everything he had made and he declared that it was good, that it was very good. But since that time, sin and rebellion has come into the world. Tears have appeared in the fabric of that good creation. And things which were never meant to be have come into and corrupted God's good creation. And that first Christmas, when Jesus came near, when God came near to us, and he took on human flesh, and he walked our streets, and he saw and he experienced close up the fallenness and the brokenness and the darkness that had come into this world. (coughs) This sigh emanates from the anguished heart of God because an alien element has come into this world and earth is no longer Eden and it grieves God. And he says, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Bodies weren't meant to be broken. People weren't meant to die. Love wasn't meant to be taken away. The very first sigh in all of history is found in Genesis chapter 3. That chapter where we read about how after God had created everything and it was very good, it was paradise, all things were given to the man and the woman for their enjoyment. There was no sin, no shame. They had a relationship with God. It was all good. And there was only one prohibition in all the world. God told them, see that tree over there? It's poisonous. It'll kill you. Trust me on this one, guys. Take my word for it. Believe that I love you. Believe that I have your best interest in mind. And trust me on this one. Don't eat the fruit of that tree because it will kill you. It's poisonous. You will die. But what did they do? Our very first ancestors. They chose to believe the serpent instead of believe God. The serpent who told them that God did not actually have their best interest in mind. That God was trying to withhold from them something good. And he encouraged them to rebel against God, and they did. And here's what we read next. After they had eaten the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3, it says this, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. (coughs) And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, And and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate, and the Lord God said, what is this you've done? You know, one of the difficulties that is inherent to reading words on a page is that you don't hear the tone of voice. You don't hear the intonation behind these words. And that's true of any book, but, but it can very much affect how you read, how you hear these words in your mind, right? 
I mean, there's some people who read this, and the way they read it is this. Where are you? Get over here, you know? What have you done? But I don't believe that that was the tone God used. Based on the context, based on the nature of God throughout the Bible, I believe that the tone of these words was heartbreak, that it was grief, it was anguish, because God knew what was going to happen. He knew what was coming now. With heartbroken, he says, where are you? He knows where they are. He just wants them to come forward. Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? What have you done? It was the world's first sigh. And of course, God knew this was coming. He wasn't surprised by it. He was grieved, though. He knew all the pain, all the sorrow that this was going to bring into the world following this, and it grieved him to his heart. And the world's first sigh, do you understand? It came from God himself before people ever began to sigh because of their own anguish and grief and frustration and sadness. God sighed because he knew what was coming. See, the story of Christmas begins with a sigh, the sigh of God there in the Garden of Eden. And the story goes on. In Genesis chapter 6, we read this, uh, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. When it says that God was grieved to the heart, that word grieved, it's a very interesting, very strong word that's used, and it means bitter anguish, deep, unfulfilled longing, deepest frustration. What that tells us is that God not only created us, but he knit his heart to us so closely that his joy is tied up with what goes on with us. Do you understand that? His joy is tied to us. And when he sees something going wrong, he experiences pain. Not just, oh, that's a bummer, but deep anguish, crushing pain. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God says this, can a nursing mother forget the baby at her breast? He says it's more likely that a nursing mother would forget her baby, that she would stop loving her baby, than that I would ever stop loving you. He's saying my love for you, my affection towards you, my care for you is greater than even the most intense love that you can possibly imagine. That's a radical statement, isn't it? It's a radical image to invoke, but God invokes it because he wants you to get a sense of how much he loves you. <coughs> when he looked upon the earth and he saw brokenness, he saw that things weren't the way that they were meant to be, it grieved him to the heart. And that's why it has been said, and I think this is a very true phrase, very striking phrase that's been said, that the tears of God are the meaning of history. If the brokenness of this world causes God so much pain, then you got to wonder, why didn't he just pull the plug right there on the spot back in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't he just wipe him out completely when he brought the flood? Why? Why let it roll forward? Why let it go on? Why not just destroy it all right there and then, put an end to all the pain, all the sighs, be done with it? That way he could just avoid it all, all the heartache. But yet, that's not what he did. Instead, God decided to weep. God decided to sigh. God decided to suffer the pain of grief. And why? Because he had a plan. Because he had a plan to bring salvation into this broken world. A plan to make a way of redemption. A way back to the way that things were meant to be for all those who would receive it. That phrase, 
that the tears of God are the meaning of history. What it means is that the only reason there is a history is because God grieved over our condition. He wept over it. He wept over the sad state of our affairs, and then he did something about it. Rather than just pulling the plug on the whole thing, which might have been easier, even though it hurt him, even though it came at great cost to him, rather than pulling the plug, he chose to suffer. He chose to weep. He chose to do something about it because he loves you. You see, that's the message of Christmas. Throughout all of history, God has been watching Waiting, never turning, always loving, always yearning, always preparing for the day when things would be made right, the, way when things, the day when things would be the way they were meant to be. That's the story of Christmas. That's the reason why Jesus was born into the world. Do you know that Jesus was born so that he could die? The shadow of the cross lay upon the manger of Bethlehem. Here's what the letter of Hebrews says about the significance of Christmas. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's saying this, because we are flesh and blood, he, God, took on flesh and blood. Why? So that through his death, we might, he might destroy death. He might set us free from bondage and the fear of death. You see, Good Friday is the reason for Christmas. Jesus was born so that he could die. And, and so God became a man because as God, he could not die, but as a man, he could. And it was through him taking our place in death that he set us free from the power of death so that we could be redeemed. Therefore, God took on human flesh. That's why it was so important to Nicholas of Myra. That's why Santa Claus gets in fist fights over whether or not Jesus is God. He says, no, Jesus is not just another good man who lived and died and said some nice things. no. Jesus was God in human flesh. That's the point of Christmas, that God came near, that God fully identified with us without giving up any of his identity, that Jesus became a man without ceasing to be God. He was fully man and fully God at the same time. And on the day that we call Good Friday, Jesus sighed the sigh to end all sighs. As he hung on the cross, as life left his body, we read this, that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That cry, that raw expression of emotion, louder and more violent than your average sigh, but expressing the same things. It was the sigh to end all sighs. <coughs> On the cross, the perfect son took our place. He bore the curse of our sin and the father turned his face away. And for the first time in all of eternity, the son was cut off from the father and the father sighed and the son sighed. And John's gospel tells us that before he breathed his final breath, Jesus said these words. He said, it is finished. The whole plan, everything that needed to be done, it's done. I did it. It was the sigh to end all sighs. Because through his death, Jesus broke the power of death. He defanged death. He declawed death. And all those things that make us sigh, we do so now with this incredible perspective 
The perspective that the day is indeed coming when all sighs will end, when there will be no more reason to sigh anymore because of what Jesus did, the day is coming when there will be no more cancer, when there will be no more death, when peace will reign and war and fear will be things of the past, when righteousness will cover the earth like the water covers the seas, when there will be love without ceasing. See, this is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope that we celebrate at Christmas time. You know this, not everyone who celebrates Christmas has this hope. Do you have this hope? This is what Christmas is about. Jesus came and died and we have been set free from the power of death. And even though these bodies of flesh that we have will pass away one day, we will live. We will live and what a great promise that is. Doesn't it change the way that you live this life? Doesn't it change the way you view death? But it also changes the way you view life here and now. Because if this life is, not, is all that there is, if this is just the pre-season, you know what I'm saying? If this is just the shadow lands, but we know that one day, because of Jesus, we're gonna experience life that is truly life. Life the way it was meant to be lived forever. Our ultimate security let me tell you this, your ultimate security will have an immediate impact on your life here and now. The happy ending takes away fear in the present. This hope makes us free to live this life with boldness, with courage. We're free to give radically, pour out our lives for the sake of other people because we literally have nothing to lose. When you no longer have to fear the last and greatest enemy, death, then you live in a way that's completely fearless. When you know that God loves you and accepts you, and you don't have to live in fear of other people rejecting you. When you know that you're forgiven, you don't have to live in the shadow of your past mistakes. And then you're truly free. Jesus sighed the sigh to end all sighs, and because of that, you can be free. And here's the last thing I'll say. Before Christmas is a joy, Christmas is an indictment. Before Christmas can be a joy, Christmas is first an indictment. You see, the very fact that Jesus had to come into this world, it tells us something about ourselves. It's an indictment. If God himself had to come into this world to die and to save you, what does that say about your condition? It says that you're in pretty dire straits. If there's no other way, for you to be saved, and for God himself to leave heaven and come to earth and die in your place, that's pretty serious. Christmas is first an indictment of how desperate our condition is, of how serious our problem is, that none other than God himself would be capable of saving you. But the reason we celebrate Advent, the good news of Christmas, is that even though your condition is so serious that Jesus had to die for you, you are so loved by God that he was glad to die for you. The only way you can really know the joy of Christmas is to embrace the whole story. It's only in understanding the whole story of Jesus from the very first sigh to the sigh to end all sighs that Christmas can really be good news of great joy for you. So I encourage you today, embrace the gospel wholeheartedly Receive Jesus as your Savior. Make him Lord of your life. And live in the complete freedom that comes from knowing that your redemption is nigh as you look forward to the day which is ever closer with each passing day. 
when all sighs will cease and what was intended to be will be because Jesus sighed the sigh to end all sighs. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sighed the sigh to end all sighs and that that day is truly coming and we can live in the hope and the knowledge of that day which is to come. Lord, when war and cancer and death and strife and all these things, these tears and rips in the fabric of your good creation when they will be things of the past. We long for that day. We thank you, Lord, that you are the bright morning star and that that star has shone in the sky and it is our redemption is nigh. We thank you for that hope. We go from here. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live in the freedom that comes from knowing that truth. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, God Came Near. For more information and audio content, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com.